Well, North Roanoke, we continue our series through the book of the 12, the 12 minor prophets, which I think every week I've reminded us are, were preserved and recorded by the Hebrew scribes in one scroll and that they hang together as one story. Um, if we could subtitle this series something other than the major theme of the minor prophets or majoring on the minors or some other silly turn of phrase like that, we might say, come Lord Jesus, because uh, the hope of the minor prophets is that both the certainty of God's judgment and the certainty of his salvation would be found in his son, in his king, the king of Zion's hill. And this morning in Obadiah, it's like we get a little bit of a reprieve on the heels of Hosea, Joel, and Amos comes Obadiah, and Obadiah answers this question for us. In a world of spiritual harlotry and divinely initiated famine and presumptive faith, where people attend church, they go to the tabernacle, they play the game, but they never have a heart that's truly for God, what hope does the one have who is actually seeking the Lord? The one who's actually longing for King Jesus to come, the one who's looking to Zion's hill for the triumph of God, what hope does he or she have? And the answer is from Obadiah, God is not ignorant. He knows what's going on. He knows what his people are facing. He knows the adversity that you face week in and week out. He knows here in the West the, the crushing uh, sound of the critics of Christianity that you hear in the marketplace. They, he knows full well what you are concerned about as you raise your kids in 2016, the brave new world of 2016. God is not ignorant. He is not unaware. And a day of justice and retribution, divine retribution is coming. In verse 15, God promises that all those offenses will come crashing down on Edom's head. My I say my, our, North Roanoke's softball team uh, played a, a team earlier this season who apparently we've, we've had a lot of success with in the past, but there were two churches that merged, and the other church that merged with this one apparently had a bunch of good players. And so North Roanoke got out on the field confident we were going to win the game, and oh, it happened so fast. I think it was the third inning. The third inning never ended, it seemed. North Roanoke just stayed on the field, and they hit every gap and every hole, and it was just murder. They were just destroying us. And, and I, I want to say, as your pastor, I, wanna, I want you to think you know, well of me and everything, but i got to tell you, there was a time in that inning when they batted around for the second time, and they were still batting, and I think we had only had one out. There was a time when I saw a look in a guy's eyes. He came trotting down first base, and he had a sneer, sneer in his face and a glint in his eye, and he knew not only were they going to win, they were just going to put the fork in and drive it down through our heart, and that bothered me. <laughs> I was not happy about that, and I couldn't forget it. I wanted vindication. I wanted retribution in God's providence and in His grace. I strained my hamstring two games earlier and was unable to play. But I would like you to know that North Roanoke did finish the job and whooped tail last Thursday night. <laughs> and they returned the favor and I hope to be able to play in the playoffs. Now you say, what does that have to do with Obadiah? Well, here's what it has to do with Obadiah. God 
fortunately, is not a 38-year-old has-been softball player. He is the righteous, sovereign God who's fully aware of what's going on in his world. And no matter how often the nations underestimate him, his just character must be ultimately maintained. In Obadiah, we learn that God will vindicate his name, his city, and his people. You see, he's the sovereign God to whom all allegiance is due. God is just, he is entirely just in doling out the punishment that is promised and the punishment that fits the crimes against his people. It's interesting, the very punishment that God prescribes for Edom is consistent with and commensurate with the things that Edom does to God's people. And he says that this will happen on the day which is drawing near on all nations. Despite its ominous tone, Obadiah is a book of incredible hope. Obadiah offers to us, the faithful of God, the consolation of his ultimate purposes and the book, though the shortest in the Old Testament, offers to us the balm to the remnant of Judah. It is like salve for our souls after enduring the buffeting of Hosea, Joel, and Amos. You see, our hope is that God is not unaware of the plight of his people and that when God vindicates his great name and his holiness and his righteousness and when he writes all wrongs, we will likewise be vindicated. Not because of what we have done, but because of what we sang about. The stone has been rolled away. We've been counted as crucified in Christ. And we, if risen in Him, have the righteousness of God imputed by the Lord. And we enjoy the twin vindication of both Yahweh and His people. In a world where Christians by the hundreds give their lives for the name of Christ every day. Where Christians throughout the Middle East are imprisoned for their confession of faith in Christ. And yes, even right here in the United States of America as a culture is squeezing ever tighter onto those who want to hold fast the faith once delivered to the saints. How is it that we can live victoriously when the enemy seems to be prevailing? To to that question... Obadiah gives these answers. First, we must trust that God will judge those who arrogantly delight in the distress of God's people. And secondly, we must take possession of what is ours through faith in Zion's king. First, we've got to trust that God's going to judge. Obadiah means servant or worshiper of Yahweh. His parents aren't mentioned in the text. We don't know their names, but here's what we know. In a dark day when it seemed that the world was going to win and God's people were going to lose, there were still some parents who dared to name their son worshiper of Yahweh. Let that be a sign to you, parents. Though the world grow dark, though the world grow strangely dim, though the world oppress and assault Christian believers, though one day your pastor may be hauled off to prison for preaching the gospel, let it be and don't give up faith that God is going to ultimately win. Don't neglect to pour that faith into your children and to trust God to use them for his glory. Today, years later, we are examining what Obadiah says to the people of God who seem to be facing certain defeat. And Obadiah records for us the vision or the revelation that God gives him concerning Edom. Now it's interesting, is it not, that the vision is concerning Edom, but it's for the people of God. God wants the people of God what is going to ultimately happen to his enemy so that we might have hope. Edom, historically, is Judah's eastern neighbor and long-standing rival. But Obadiah is not primarily written 
as a geopolitical document, meaning about nations and battling for territory. That is not the primary subject of Obadiah. Indeed, Edom is destroyed before Christ ever arrives on the scene. And you say, well, that means Obadiah was right, Edom was vanquished, they have no relevance for our lives. But that's actually not what Obadiah is saying, because we see at the end of Obadiah that Edom is there with all the nations being judged. Well, how is that if Edom has ceased to exist? It's because Edom is more than just an ethnic group, more than just a nation. Edom is representative of all those who would ignore God's gospel, which is given through God's promised son. You remember Edom? In the text of Genesis appears in Genesis 36 verse 8. Who is Edom? Esau is Edom. What did, e what did Esau do? He hated the fact that the blessings of God were going to go through Jacob and not through Esau. So Esau represents all those who hear the gospel, who hear that we must trust in God and come only through Christ and through Christ alone, and they want to reject that. Edom is alive and well in the world today. Edom is all those people who sneer at Christians who believe a victory is awaiting them and who believe that God demands and is worthy of their faithful obedience. And to those who reject the son of promise by oppressing his people, what will God do? Look at verse 2. He despises them. He will make them small. Verse 2. He will bring them down. Verse 4. He will ransack their Possessions, verse 6. He will cut them off by slaughter, verse 9. He will cut them off forever, verse 10. And he will leave no survivors. You say, well, how, how can God despise any of his creation? Here's, here's how. Because there comes a point when sin and sinner are the same. And no more can God love the sinner and hate the sin because to hate the sin is to hate the sinner. And that day is coming on that great day. So repent would be Obadiah's admonition to us before the day comes. And it's too late. Edom is castigated. They're cast down by God for their arrogance. Verses 3 and 4. The heights of Edom's arrogance are reflected in the ascent of the text. Did you see? It, it's, it's poetry in verses 3 and 4. He takes us from rocky heights to an eagle in the sky to the starry heavens. The Edomites abide in the clefts of the rock. They don't go there, incidentally, like Moses to see the glory of God. Do you remember that story? God, Moses, God, Moses says to God, let me see your glory. And God says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and my glory is going to pass by. No, they go to the clefts of the rock, not that God would be glorified and that God's glory would be revealed, but that they would be glorified and that they could parade it about and oppress the people of God. They did not run to the Savior who is the cleft of the rock, the Savior cleft for me. They went there and oppressed God's people day by day. Baker says, secure from human attack through no merit of their own as they are literally elevated above their enemies so they are raised metaphorically above them by pride. These Edomites ask in verse 2, who will bring me down to earth? Yahweh answers in verse 4, I will bring you down. Though they ascend to the heavens like the Tower of Babel, God will come and bring them down in an instant from their lofty heights. 
The people who oppress the people of God are deceived by their pride. Verse 2, it leads them to behave as though there is no God. Or if there is a God, he's out to lunch. He doesn't care. He's not paying attention and he's powerless to do anything about their injustice. So they will make a mockery of God and his people. It reminds me of Proverbs verses Verse 18 of chapter 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Edom's pride leads to Edom's behavior, the behavior that receives the divine retribution of God. In verses 5 and 6, God asks a rhetorical question. If if thieves came, if people who wanted to, to destroy your grapes came, what would they do? They would come and take enough for themselves, but there would be something left for you. But in verse 6, God says, when I come... And overthrow your arrogant, your arrogant threatenings and dangers and dismissals of my people. There will be nothing left of what you have. In verse 7, we find that the Edomites who called the nations to battle will ultimately be tricked by the nations that they call to battle. You see, those who were sort of in the family like Esau... Esau was in the family, but he hated and despised his brother, and he had an opportunity to receive the promises of God, but they said, I'm going to reject the promises of God, and I'm going to ally myself with the worldly powers out there, and they call the whole world to an assault against God and his people, but in verse 7, what happens to the Edomites? Those foreign alliances in which they trusted fail them. Do you see that? They deceive them. They overpower them. Now in the text, in the Hebrew text, it's interesting. It does not say, they who eat your bread. It actually just says, the men allied with you, or the men in covenant with you, your bread. Interesting, is it not, that in Hosea, Joel, and Amos, in every single book, we've read about the bread that was either provided or not provided, available or not available. And the question that Obadiah is asking you is, where is your bread coming from? What is sustaining you? Is what is sustaining you the hope of the vindication of God who is coming for his people? Or is it in your ability to patch together your own little world in your own little space and do it your way? And to play a few games over here and a few games over there and make it all come out all right. God says that sort of behavior, that sort of mindset where you pretend to have Christ as your bread, but actually your bread is your gamesmanship. Your ability to hold the alliance all together, that's going to come crashing down and your bread will eat you. Interesting that the descendants of Esau who traded their birthright for a thing of a cup of stew will ultimately come down to their demise because they trusted in the wrong bread. In verses 8 and 9, we find that trust in human wisdom and might leads to their destruction. The wise men who constructed their society, the wise men who construct the way the world runs right now, will be destroyed. The world's intelligentsia who run the world from their lofty bureaucratic per- per- perches will be destroyed. The mighty men, the soldiers who offered them the protection they needed to oppress the poor and to keep down the middle class, everyone is there pictured to, as being on The mountain of Esau opposed to God's way of salvation. 
and they, according to Obadiah, will be slaughtered on that great day. Verses 10 and 12 remind us that Esau is Jacob's brother. God chose Jacob as the son through whom the promise would pass and through whom Christ would eventually come, and Esau rejected God's plan. And so when we read words like Jacob and Esau, and we read about violence to your brother Jacob, we're reading about more than just a local family feud. We're reading about the war to end all wars. The war between whether we will receive the promises of God that come through his appointed son, or we will go our own way. And all those who reject God's grace that comes through God's son are Edom. You see, Edom is not just what's in your blood. It's what's in your heart. Verse 3, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Without the grace of God, we are Edom. But with the grace of God, we are those who are counted as having already been restored and redeemed at Calvary's cross. And look what the Edomites do with the cross. It's interesting to read commentators on this text. They go, well, what are they talking about here? Are they talking about a battle that happened in the 8th century? Are they talking about when Jerusalem fell in the 6th century? I submit to you that the reason Edom doesn't tell the reason Obadiah doesn't tell us exactly what event he's talking about in these next few verses is because he wants to look to the ultimate ultimate event of the cross of Christ. Because of your violence to your brother Jacob, which is representative of the son of promise, Jesus Christ, who what does he do? He goes to the cross for us, but because of the violence to Christ on the cross that they did not receive the benefit of, they will be covered with shame. They will be cut off forever. Those who stood back and looked and scoffed at Christ when he was on the cross, when you carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and lots were cast for the city of Jerusalem What does he say of Edom? You too were like one of them. He goes on to urge them not to gloat in their brother's day of demise, not to rejoice over the sons of Judah in their day of destruction. But the Edomites go from gloating to looting. They go from having a big mouth, is what the word boasting means, to actually oppressing and cutting down the survivors as they flee the cross event and then ultimately, as we know, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, Edom is operative in our world today. He is assaulting the people of God who look to the cross of salvation and don't gloat at Jesus, but they glory in what they receive through Christ. We look to the cross and we say, praise God for a Messiah who took the judgment that I deserve and poured out his spirit that I might go in Jesus' name. But there is Edom all around and that we, they want to, they want to, they want to tear us down. They want to destroy our faith. They want to unhinge us from that which we can trust and we can believe. And the reality is, in 2016, many of us this morning come to a place like North Roanoke Baptist Church and we are despairing. Because we're living our Christian lives not through the promises of God that we find in Obadiah and similar 
passages, but we're living our Christian lives through Fox News. And you know what? Here's a June 2nd headline from Fox News. Q&A, a look at white evangelical angst over declining clout. Well, we've lost our clout. What are we going to do? The article goes on to mention the Southern Baptist Convention is in decline. Its membership's gone from about 16.5 million to below 15 million. The 2015 Supreme Court ruling on same sex marriage may very well lead to a loss of our tax exempt status as a church. Private Christian businesses and business people are being forced either to violate their conscience, go out of business, or pay unjust fines. And on and on and on. Soon we're going to have to ask the question where do I educate my child if? The trajectory of our culture continues. These are questions that we face in this world. But into these questions, Obadiah writes, God has a day. He is not unaware. He is not immune. And he knows full well what's coming to those who want to oppose Christ and his people. Into this despair, into this Fox News Christianity, God says, look again to my word. Stop looking at the newspaper and look at that day. For on that day, the Lord draws near on all the nations. And as you have done, it will be done to you and your dealings will return on your own head. We don't have to judge. We don't have to go on Facebook and make fun of the world that opposes us. God's got that covered. We sit here and delight in and glory in and hope in the God who will vindicate himself. And because he vindicates himself, he will vindicate his people who belong to him. Our hope is not in political coalition building. It's not in American history. It's not even in the United States Constitution, as good of a document as that is. Our hope is in the vindication that we have in Christ and Christ alone. So let us not commit the same mistake that the Edomites do. What do the Edomites do? They look around at our circumstances and they say, see, those Christians are weak. And they push even more. And we start to believe it. We start to think our God is dead, our God is impotent, our God is unaware, our God is not protecting his people. And we start to get down and mealy-mouthed and woe is me. And all we can talk about is how bad the world is. But God has fixed a day in which those who proudly drank on Jerusalem, those who made a mockery of his people, will drink down God's wine cup of wrath forever and ever and ever. He has fixed a day in which the destructions of the son, the destruction of the sons of Judah, those who have been martyred for their faith, those who did that will become like they never even existed. Now, that was in verse 16, a word of clarification. There are some who think that becoming as though they never existed means that God's just going to annihilate those who die without Christ. That they'll just cease to exist. How could a loving God send someone to a fiery hell forever for their sin? Well, there are plenty of verses that assure us that's exactly what's going to happen. That those who die without Christ will abide in the fiery wrath of God, a place we call hell forever and ever and ever and ever because God is that holy. He is that just. And one offense against a holy God who is eternal has eternal consequences. However, this verse is written from the perspective of those who are in God's kingdom. For those of us who are in God's kingdom, there's coming a day where it's going to be like all the enemy opposition that we faced never even existed. 
for the people who are in the Middle East whose heads are going to be cut off later this day because they refuse to deny Christ. There's coming a day even for them where the opposition that they face seems like nothing because of the vindication that they will have in Christ. Those who were looted for their faithfulness to Zion's king will possess their possessions on Zion's hill. Of those who imprison the survivors of God's people, that's people like you and me, people who are running with the gospel out into the world, those who ultimately get imprisoned for their faith, those who do the imprisoning of them, there will be no survivors. Obadiah goes on to tell us that God will even use Christians as agents of His wrath on that day, that we will be like fire and that Edom will be like stubble. We don't do this from our own questionable desires for revenge, but we do it as instruments of God by which His just verdict is to be executed. And we do it on that day, not in this day. We're not the judges. God is judge. And in verse 18, God assures us, Lest we doubt that that day is coming, for the Lord has spoken. The day of the Lord coming against the people who oppress the people of God is as sure as God and His Word. And for us to live victoriously in this world, we've got to trust and believe that God knows what's happening and that He will judge. But secondly, we must take possession of what is ours through faith in Zion's King. Interestingly enough, almost the entire book of Obadiah is written as though these things have already happened. Where it says this will happen and this will happen, the the verb is actually written in a tense that suggests it is as good as has happened. So, for example, verse 21, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Literally, it says, and the kingdom has been the Lord's. It, It belongs to God all ready. What he has promised, the destruction that he has promised, the vindication that he has promised to his people is as good as already done. And Obadiah concludes then with a promise of territorial expansion for God's people in all directions until they gain all the land that God has for them. Now let me ask you a question. Where is the promised land? Where's the promised land? Is it a postage stamp over in the Middle East we call Israel? Is that the promised land? Is that all that God has for his people? No. From Genesis forward, God tells us that the whole earth is full of his glory. That the whole earth is his. And he tells, interestingly enough, to Jacob. Do you remember the promise to Jacob when he sends Jacob out to get a wife? He says, your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out. Listen for it. To the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Amos's, you remember Amos last week, verse 12 of chapter 9? Amos has a remnant of Edom. Now, now we've got to wrestle with something because he just told us in verse 18, Obadiah did, there will be no survivors of Edom. But then Amos tells us there is going to be a remnant of Edom in God's kingdom. So how is it that Edom doesn't make it, but some of Edom make it? Do you understand the problem? Here's how. Some who were Edom end up trusting Christ, and though they were Edomites, they end up belonging to the one who is Christ, their 
head. In the midst of the most severe opposition, God's kingdom is nevertheless on the advance even to the nations who right now stand under God's judgment. Those who face the day when the vindication of Christ is going to come down on their head can instead still have the hope of the gospel. And where does the hope of the gospel come from? It comes from you and me. Did you see at verse 21 what happens? The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge Mount Esau. And the mountain of Esau there, the word judge, doesn't mean to convict them of their sin. It means to lead and to guide them. So there's going to be a union of at least some who are of Esau and some who are in Judah in this kingdom which goes from north to south to east to west and covers the whole land. How is this possible? It's possible because God has sent His one and only begotten Son. And His one and only Son came in fulfillment of the promise that Obadiah anticipated. He went to the cross. People gloated. They mocked. They scorned. They cast lots for Him. But on the third day, He was risen from the grave. And He commissioned His disciples with the gospel. And we have the gospel, the word of truth. And He has taken churches like North Roanoke Baptist Church. And He said, I've fixed a day. Don't you worry about the people who assail you and assault you and bring you under uh, they seize you, they cut off your heads, they take you to court they do all sorts of things don't you worry about that, God's going to worry about that but between this day and that day that God has fixed, he's given us a gospel and guess what he has made us not only those who fix our eyes on Christ who comes out of Zion's hill he has made us the deliverers who ascend Mount Zion's hill with the instrument of God's subjugation and his salvation because there is no salvation unless we are subject to King Jesus but here is what we see at the end we see that to be conquered by God's king is to become a part of his kingdom and there's a whole world that's filled with Edomites who want to go their own way and reject that the gospel comes through Christ and Christ alone and he has given us the sword of truth to go out in Jesus name and to make all nations subject to King Jesus now that they might have his salvation before it's too late we are more than conquerors in Christ would you pray with me our father and our God We thank you that you fixed the day in which all the wrongs will be made right, in which your character and your holiness and your justice will be revealed. And we pray, God, for your strength to be the deliverers ascending Zion's hill as we allow our hearts to ascend in worship to you and as we depart with the gospel of truth, the sword of truth, we pray, God, that many nations who are now opposed to you, that they would come to a saving knowledge of who you are, that they too might be worshipers on Zion's hill rather than receivers of your wrath. Lord, we thank you that Obadiah offers a pause from the, from the despair that sin brings in Hosea, Joel, and Amos, and the consequence of sin. And it, it, it runs to us and it says, look, if you're looking to Jesus, if Jesus is your Savior, if He's your Master, if He's your King, then God will deliver and He will vindicate His righteousness and your faith. We thank you, God, for the gospel. And we pray, God, that others would know the great joy of knowing you. In Christ's name. 
Amen. You know, there's an episode of Looney Tunes where Yosemite Sam tries for an entire episode to beat Bugs Bunny. And he can't do it. And at the very end of the episode, you remember the line? He says, if you can't beat him, join him. You can't beat Jesus, but you can join him. Don't wait another day to get on the winning side and to be a deliverer who ascends Zion's hill with the sword of truth. Let's worship together.